Good morning. Uh, it is always good to be with you here at Sanctuary. Um, my wife and I both get invited to preach a lot of places, mostly because our community doesn't worship on Sundays, and so we're available. Uh, so we, we uh, worship in a lot of different churches, uh, preach in a lot of different churches, and it's always good, you know, you get up and you look out at the crowd, and it's like, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't really know you, but here we are. Uh, but I always love coming here because I not only look out and see brothers and sisters, I see friends. And so it's always good to be among friends. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeff Vendracht. Um I pastor, well, now two communities, uh, Graduate Christian Fellowship, which is a campus ministry over at the University of Washington for faculty and grad students. Uh, my wife and I have been doing that for eight years now. Uh, but a year ago, we uh, took the leap of deciding to plant a church as well. So I'm also now pastor of Church on the Ave, which as of July 1 was a year old. So that's who I am. Uh, and it is good to be with you to preach and bring God's word this morning. That word comes to us from the book of Luke, chapter 6. So we're going to have a look at Luke 6, verses 12 through 26. Hear these words. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. So most of you will remember back in February, the snowstorm that we got here in Seattle, snowmageddon, the snowpocalypse. Uh, I'm from Michigan, so it didn't really feel like the end of the world to me, but uh, as the storm approached over at Church on the Ave, uh, we wanted to do something to support our unhoused neighbors in the U District. And so on a Friday morning, about 15 of us, we gathered at the chapel where we worship around 8 a.m., and we packed up bags with gloves and hats and blankets, and we struck out into the neighborhood looking for folks who would be weathering the storm outside. 
Uh, my assignment, along with my co-pastor Calvin and a couple of students, was to head out uh, 45th Street toward I-5 to see who we could find in those green spaces along the highway. So that's what we did. Uh, <laughs> we parked on 7th Ave, and we started to walk. And you can probably guess what we found. Tents. Some occupied, some abandoned, and around them, garbage. Lots and lots of garbage. And needles, other drug paraphernalia. And in a few spots, though we couldn't see it, we could definitely smell it, the human waste. And in the midst of all of that, we found people. People braving the cold, chatting, sharing cigarettes. Some of them were hunkered down inside their tents. Others were making plans to get out of town ahead of the storm. This was my first time actually seeking out folks who live outside in the U District. Not my first experience of them, because you can't spend any time in our neighborhood without bumping into them. Uh, we get folks showing up on the chapel steps all the time. But this was my first time seeing where and how at least some of them lived. And it was heartbreaking. It was sobering. Uh, the experience sort of lived with me for the next few weeks, just kind of in the back of my head, haunting me. And then I sat down to write this sermon just shortly after that. And as I did, I found myself chafing at Jesus' words here. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Certainly not the word I would use. Not to describe what I saw among the tents on that Friday morning. Sad, tragic, miserable, broken. Take your pick. But blessed is about the last word I'd choose. I'm guessing that most of us have had enough exposure to poverty that Jesus' words here can seem naive at best. They can be read as out of touch, even a little offensive. Blessed are the poor. Go ask the poor if they feel blessed. These words that Luke records for us, they have always proved tricky for Christians to interpret. Readers of Luke's gospel have tried all sorts of ways to make Jesus' audacious claims about the poor sound not quite so audacious. One way we've done this is by making poverty a virtue, right? Blessed are the poor because they're unencumbered by the trappings of wealth. Blessed are the poor because they recognize their need for God. Blessed are the poor because they are content and grateful for the little that they have so on so forth. We make poverty a virtue. We moralize Jesus' statements, making being poor and grief-stricken and hungry things to which we should aspire. But since that sounds kind of terrible, <laughs> we found other ways of making sense of these words. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, this same beatitude has two extra words. You know what they are? Yeah, yeah. Jesus calls blessed those who are poor in spirit, right? And those two words, in spirit, they open up a whole other possibility for us. A poverty of spirit. 
a spirit that renounces earthly goods and clings only to God, even if, materially speaking, we give up very little. Poverty of spirit allows us to enjoy our wealth as long as our first priority is Christ and his kingdom. Right? Unfortunately, we're not reading Matthew's gospel. <laughs> this is the gospel of Luke. And Luke doesn't give us the in-spirit option. Luke's Jesus blesses the poor, full stop. He blesses the hungry, full stop. Luke's Jesus doesn't give us the option of moralizing his statements, making the poor into saints, and he doesn't give us the option of spiritualizing his statements, making the poverty he's talking about some sort of zen-like inner reality. This comes through even more clearly if you read this passage in the Greek, um, in particular this first beatitude, blessed are you who are poor. That word poor, in the Greek the word is patachoi. Uh, its meaning is a little more specific than just poor. Uh, the word is derived from the verb patasso, which means to crouch or to cower. And so it describes someone who's not just poor, but destitute. It's the extreme opposite of rich. In scripture, it's used to describe beggars. And in one instance, it's even translated as worthless. Even just the sound of the word gives you a sense of its meaning. Patachoi. To say it, you have to spit. And in fact, the word begins with the same sounds as the Greek word patuo, which means I am spitting. And so, patakoi, the spat upon. There's a song by Simon and Garfunkel that picks up on this. It's called Blessed. It's loosely based on the Beatitudes. There's a line that goes, Blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, the ratted on. And that about sums it up. These are the poor that Jesus is talking about. They aren't the virtuous poor that we like to imagine. They aren't the contented, spiritually rich poor. They are the sat upon, the spat upon, and the ratted on. They're on the receiving end of all the worst that this world has to offer. They're the despised and cowering destitute. And Jesus calls them blessed. How can this be? Well, to get a better idea of what's going on, I think we need to back up just a little bit. Okay, our text begins with Jesus praying on a mountaintop. Always a sure sign that something important is about to happen. As he descends from the mountain, Jesus gathers his disciples and he chooses 12 to be apostles, his inner circle. And anyone who knows anything about the history of Israel will tell you that number 12 is anything but arbitrary, right? Um, Twelve apostles, one for each of the tribes of Israel. But the question is why? What is Jesus saying by choosing twelve apostles? Well, short answer, God is starting over. God is forming for himself a new people. Just as he formed the people of Israel from the twelve great-grandsons of Abraham, he's now forming a new people for himself from the twelve apostles of Christ. A new people to be and to do what Israel had failed to be and do. 
You see, God's whole purpose in forming a people for himself, his whole reason for establishing Israel as a nation was to bring redemption to the world. It was to bless the whole world through Israel. It's right there in God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12, right? After he tells Abraham to leave his home and everything he knows, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And the way that Israel was meant to bless the nations was by not being like them. It was by being a wholly different kind of people, a people who played by a different set of rules because they worshipped a very different God. Israel was meant to show the world what their God looked like. They were meant to be a people who modeled love and justice and peace by the way they lived together, by the way they cared for one another, especially for the most vulnerable among them, the widow, the orphan, the alien. The very way that Israel was to structure its society was meant to show the world a better way. It was meant to give the world a picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Of course, we all know how that went. Spend five minutes in the prophetic books and it becomes clear just how badly Israel failed at this. Instead of operating on the logic of the kingdom, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. They operated on the logic of the world. It says, survival of the fittest. Get yours while the getting is good. Instead of caring for the most vulnerable, they neglected and exploited the widows and orphans and aliens. Instead of practicing jubilee and leveling the playing field every 50 years as God had prescribed, some amassed fortunes while others were forced into servitude. In other words... Israel ended up looking just like all of the nations around them. And at the time that Jesus comes on the scene, not much has changed. Israel, now a captive nation, continues to operate on the logic of the world. Yes, there are plenty of religious people around, but those people seem more concerned about their own personal piety and holding on to power than they do in the welfare of their neighbors. And so, after a night praying on a mountaintop, Jesus assembles his team he picks the 12 who will form the core of a new community, a community of new people, a people charged with being and doing what Israel couldn't, a people meant to show the world what the kingdom of heaven looks like. But first, first they have to be taught. And so Jesus launches into what's come to be known as the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's counterpart to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And it serves pretty much the same purpose. It's meant to show the disciples and all of us a picture of what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And it's through that lens that we have to interpret Jesus' words about the poor, the hungry, and the grieving. What Jesus is saying when he describes these folks as blessed is not that there is something blessed about their suffering. It's not that their poverty and grief are somehow virtuous or spiritually enriching. What Jesus is saying is that there is hope on the horizon. What he's saying is that there is a kingdom coming in which they will no longer be the patakoi, the poor. They will no longer have to cower and beg there's a kingdom coming in which their stomachs will be filled and their tears will be wiped away, where the powers that oppress them will be laid low and they will finally be treated 
with the dignity that they're due. Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is coming. It belongs to you. But that's not all. If Jesus had stopped there, this would have been way easier, this text. But he goes on. If the poor, the hungry, and the grieving are the world's punching bag, Jesus has some words for those doing the punching. Woe to you who are rich. You have received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed. You'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you will mourn and weep. Jesus doesn't mince words. If the kingdom of heaven elevates the oppressed, it also lays low the oppressor. Now we have to be careful with these words. In the same way we did with the blessings Jesus spoke earlier. If we moralize them, we all have to go on diets. Cut comedy out of our lives. No more laughing. If we spiritualize them, well then we risk taking away the hard edge that Jesus intends for them to have. So if you allow me just a little bit of latitude, I want to suggest a paraphrase of these woes that I think gets at the heart of the matter. Woe to you whose riches come at another's expense. Woe to you who think that what you have is yours and yours alone. Woe to you who stuff yourselves without a care for the hungry among you. Woe to you who laugh blissfully and willfully ignorant of your neighbor's tears. Woe to you who use your wealth to insulate yourselves from the suffering that runs rampant in this world. You might laugh now, but the day is coming when you'll be held to account, and then you will weep. At the end of the day, I do not believe that wealth or contentedness are wrong in and of themselves, right? God doesn't desire uh, grieving or poverty for anybody. But what I think this text demands that we see is that we are people in relationship. We are, in fact, our brother's keepers our sister's keepers. We are responsible to the poor, the hungry, and the grieving. And woe to us if we abdicate that responsibility. Woe to us if we use our wealth, our education, our privilege, what have you, if we use it to distance ourselves from the suffering in this world. Because we belong to that people that Jesus came to form all of us who claim Jesus as Lord, we belong to that community that's meant to show the world what the life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. We are the ones who should be running toward the suffering when others are running away from it. We should be ones seeking out the poor, the hungry, the grieving. We should be the ones giving sacrificially our money, ourselves, our time, everything. 
And we should do these things not because we have some sense of guilt or obligation, though some of us really do carry those things. We should do these things with joy. Because this is where true life is to be found. If we take Jesus at his word, this is where Jesus is to be found. Whatever you did for the least of these my brothers, you did for me. That's what he said. The author of our text, Luke, um, you probably know, he also authored a sequel to his gospel, the book of Acts. And in the early chapters of that book, shortly after he recounts the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Luke gives us a picture of what life looked like in that very first Christian community. And as part of that description, he says this. He says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Luke gives us a picture of a people who are living into the kingdom of heaven. This is a people who do life together in such a way that there are no poor, no patakoi among them, because the love of Christ has moved them to set aside their self-interest and to embrace other people's needs as their own. Friends, this is who we're supposed to be. As people who follow Jesus, this is who we are meant to be. As the church in the world, a world full of hurting and hungry people. I got the smallest glimpse of this back in February when we got out into the U District and invited folks into our building to warm up, have a bite to eat, share some stories. I got the slightest glimpse of how a church can love a place and its people how we can model life in the kingdom of heaven. And then my prayer for this church is that God would grow your hearts for this place and these people. That this church would come to be known as folks who run toward the suffering, not away from it. May God grant us all the grace to give this world a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you yourself did not run away from the suffering, but ran toward it. We pray, Holy Spirit, grow our hearts for those who hunger, for those who grieve, for those whom this world rejects, because you have told us that your kingdom is for such as these. Help us, Lord, to give the world a picture of that kingdom coming. In Christ we pray. Amen.